On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about some of the things that you love to talk about. And when I say love, my tongue is buried firmly in my cheek, namely potholes. Nobody likes potholes, but we're going to have a million of them this spring. We're going to tell you why. We're going to be chatting about the justice system. Should penalties be for the result of actions or for the behavior? Because sometimes you can have terrible results and sometimes you can have no results for the exact same thing. And... We're going to be chatting with Neil Lumsden, former Ticat GM, former athletics director at Brock University, just retired from that position, about Canadian university sports and why we can't seem to get the same attention, same interest in Canadian university sports that they get south of the border. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to tell you something that you already know. It's cold out there. Last week, it was freezing, as you will recall, lots and lots of snow as well. Then, if your memory is still good and it hasn't frozen completely solid, you, we had a thaw, if you remember, and a bunch of rain. Were you, out, were you outside for the rain when, okay. Then, we had more snow, as you know, and we're back into this immense deep freeze. Why am I telling you all this? Well, if you were listening to Jay McQueen's forecast... This weekend, we're expecting the conditions to go back up, temperatures to go back up. We're expecting another thaw with possibly some rain. By Wednesday, temperatures are expected now to be up around 8 or 10 degrees. It's going to be balmy. Followed, of course, by a plunge back into the polar vortex by next weekend when it's supposed to be minus 13 or so. Why am I telling you all this? Well, because if there's one thing I've learned from my next guest and others... That up and down, up and down, freeze, thaw, freeze, thaw, freeze, thaw situation, ideal for one thing, potholes. Uh Uh-huh. Dan McKinnon is the general manager of Public Works. He is the guy in charge of pretty much everything in the city of Hamilton now. He's kind of like the mayor without the election. He joins us. Dan, how are you today? Mr. Radley, I always appreciate the intro music that you pick for my interviews. Thank you. I, you know, I would love to take credit for that. I can't. That's Will. But uh, I will I will certainly take the credit because I need to take credit for something at some point. Well uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you were drawing up, Dan, if you had sat down and you had control of these kind of things and you were able to draw up weather patterns to create the worst road-killing conditions, could you do better than what we've been going through and what we are about to go through? You could not. I, I think this is uh, this is the perfect storm, uh, literally, for the destruction of a road network. And uh, I certainly expect that over the next four to six weeks, we are going to see an emergence of potholes that is going to be very unwelcome. And uh, hopefully not as bad as last year, but this is exactly the kind of weather that just destroys roads. So uh, certainly uh, concerned about the next several weeks. For those who don't know the technology or the pro- reason why this kind of situation does this, take a moment or two and explain why this thaw, freeze, thaw, freeze, back and forth, back and forth, does this to roads. Well, uh, first of all, we're starting with a road network that's not uh, in optimum condition. Uh, as part of uh, the information that we share with council on a regular basis, we we talk about uh, the condition of the assets. So we know that our entire road network, the average uh, overall condition index is around 62, which is no different than, you know, uh, a grade out of 100. So 62 is not fantastic. It's not terrible. But we know that a lot of the roads in Hamilton are already jeopardized to start with under the best of conditions. So when you uh, layer in this type of weather, um, so uh, it, it really creates uh, a situation where they're going to deteriorate much more 
uh, quickly. And, and what happens is, is that surface at the road, uh, at the, at the, um, the matrix at the surface, every day when the sun comes out, it starts to melt a little bit and then you get the freeze. And um, so what that allows is any weaknesses in the surface where there's a crack or any kind of uh, small potholes, it allows the moisture to get in underneath it and the frost will just pop it out. And uh, so the, the, the action of the traffic on it with these freeze-thaw cycles just creates uh, an environment where it's going to accelerate the degradation of our road network. And would I be correct then that every time this happens, it gets worse because every time the water goes in and then freezes, it makes the crack or the opening a little bit bigger so a little more water can get in and freeze and then make it worse every time? It, that's that's it, that's exactly what happens. You've, uh, you've, you've used a much more elegant way to well, uh, explain it than I did. Well, but th- would this then be, would we be having these same problems with the road problems if it was thawing and freezing and thawing and freezing, but dry? If we were, if we had no snow and no rain, but it was just cold and warm and cold and warm, would it do the same thing? I, I think that would probably help a little bit. Um, I don't know if it would be dramatic enough to be able to measure it, but uh, certainly the moisture is a challenge. So, the fact that you get that moisture uh, freezing and thawing is really what's the, the mechanism of uh, uh, of, uh, of problem here. So it's uh, if it was dry, that would certainly be better. If it went to minus five and stayed there for two months, that would be much better than the, the continual deviation in the temperature. It's the it's that freezing and thawing action that really uh, works against us. Is there any way to prevent this? I mean, we see on certain roads uh, in the summertime, for example, I don't know if they still do this, but you, you would see like tar lines where someone's filled a crack a little bit or something. Is there a way to go around in the fall and fill cracks that would prevent this kind of thing? Crack sealing is a program that the uh, that, that we're going to be reinvigorating in, the, in our transportation group. Um, there, there's a very short kind of window when crack sealing will give you the optimum benefit and it, it probably occurs on roads when they're much younger than when most people would expect us to be out there doing it. But there's uh, there's a short window of time, maybe when a road is anywhere from between 10 and, and, and maybe 20 years of age, usually around the 14-year mark when you can go in there and you can do crack sealing. And that's when you'll get the, the biggest bang for your buck. But once you get beyond uh, the size of a crack that um, you know, the mastic will seal, uh, then you're probably just wasting your time. So that's a program that we need to put more uh, energy behind in order to get a, a better life out of our road network. The other challenge that we have is just the, the amount of uh, capital that's being um, put towards reconstructing roads. So I can tell you that in our capital budget this year for 2019, we have about $51 million. Let me jump in we- for a sec, Dan, because I want to hear about that. I want to talk about the money behind it because it is a big issue. We've got to take a quick break. Then we'll come back with Dan McKinnon, the uh, general manager of Public Works, about our future pothole problems right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, General Manager of Public Works for the City of Hamilton, Dan McKinnon, joins me. And Dan, just before the break, I had to interrupt you there to get to the break, but you were mentioning the cost of this because the the cost for roads and the cost for this is not insignificant. Yeah, the the City city Council approves a pretty significant amount of money every year for road reconstruction. So there's there's two places we spend money on roads. One is in our operating budget, and that's what you're seeing out there right now when we're patching potholes. So I can tell you that in the month of January, we've patched about 2,100 potholes, and it's cost us about $260,000 to do that. Last year, last winter was an extraordinary winter, and we spent over $4 million patching potholes. But going forward, uh, the way you get ahead of that is that you, you rebuild your roads before they, they fall into a state of decline where they're going to be very susceptible to potholes. And so through the capital budget this year, uh, City Council approved $51 million for uh, capital road reconstruction. 
which is a slight increase over um, previous years. Um, and also last year, Council approved an extra re- an extra amount of money for uh, capital road reconstruction as well. So Council's doing their best to, to balance all of the priorities of the city with trying to get a little more money into the roads program so that we can rebuild these roads, get them in a better state of condition so they're in a in a healthier state and they can with uh, better withstand these uh, ex- extreme uh, weather deviations. I'm glad you brought that up about council and about the money there because we were listening in, uh, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, I've lost track, um, about the road thing. And one of the issues that was brought up by a number of councillors was, are we spending too much on roads? We have other issues, other things we need to spend on infrastructure in this city. I, you're not, I don't think, going to be diving into the debate uh, and making your point known. That's, that's not really your job. But what happens if all of a sudden the amount of money that is designated for roads or that has been designated for roads typically were to suddenly drop by 10 or 15 or $20 million a year? What would that mean in practical terms for what we would see? Uh, I would say a $20 million decline in the roads capital budget would be, would be significant. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to all the, all the pressures that council faces when they're trying to balance investments from a capital perspective, be it housing, our recreational and corporate facilities, or our, our water and sewer network, or our road network. The one thing I would say that when you look at all the assets that the city owns and operates, the road network is the most expensive one from a, from a value perspective. And it's probably it's probably one that really has the most profound effect on the community when you think about the, the transportation of goods and our transit system and and you know people being able to get to where they want to go uh, and, and it, you know without, without damaging their car and getting there in, at a you know in a in a in a, in a speedy way. So um, you know it's one of the things that we do deliver capital and public works. So I'm passionate about it. And I'm always going to be biased about uh, making investments in the road network, but it's certainly not an easy decision and. You know, I don't, I don't envy uh, councillors in, the, in their in their debate over this, but uh, certainly a twenty million dollar reduction in our budget that would be a catastrophic hit to the budget, and I don't think there's any, uh, you know, I'm not sensing any move in that direction. I think that would be be, be bad for our economy. I think that council's always going to be focused on trying to find us a little more money uh, for the road network. Uh, while balancing all the other pressures that they have from an economic perspective. All right, and let's say twenty million. We just brought that figure out of midair, but let's say it was five million. I mean, could 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 that kind of money, which seems like it would be more of a realistic number, considering the you know that'll be ten percent of what has been spent. Could you patch and could you cover and could you hold things together if that much or some figure like that was taken away? Well, I, I think the, my follow-up question. We're, for you would be well, tell me what kind of weather I'm going to be dealing with. Mm. Uh, if I keep dealing with winters like this, then no. The challenge with uh, there's there's an interplay between capital reinvestment versus operating dollars. The more money I get to invest in capital over the longer term will drive down the money that I have to spend from an operating perspective. And then the reverse is true. So if, if year after year my road budget was cut by five million dollars, I guarantee you my operating budget is going right. to skyrocket. Right. Yeah. And it's not it's not efficient to uh, it's not an efficient uh, methodology to be patching potholes over the longer term. The best strategy from a sustainability perspective is to be reconstructing these roads. Do the fixes last? I mean, last year Main Street West, you were on here. We talked about it when that when that was really bad, and you were about to get going on that one. I don't. I haven't been driving along there. I don't really know. Has it lasted? Is it in good shape right now? Can they last well enough? Um, so the the fix on Main Street last year was not optimal, and it wasn't the perfect time of year to be doing it. So it wasn't uh, the best candidate for what we call a shave and pave, which is exactly what we did down there. But um, we, we certainly bought ourselves another five to seven years uh, in that asset, but I, I know that from my own observations of driving in the curb lane where the uh, 
the buses travel, we're already starting to see a little bit of deformation there. And um, so that, that's the challenge that we have when we make a decision about how we're going to rehabilitate a road. We have to be very targeted and selective when we do these shaven paves because we have to make sure that the base is in, ex- in extremely good shape. We have to consider the type of traffic that's going to be on there. And I can tell you the, uh, the buses and, and the truck traffic are extremely hard on the, uh, on, the, on these systems, especially uh, you know, when you think about the, uh, the impact of buses stopping at the same spot every day. So we're uh, so I, I think it's uh, I think it was a good solution. Uh, the, you know the other issue about the Main Street uh, situation from last year. It's also part of the LRT corridor, so we know that in the next few years that's going to be excavated and dug up again. Uh, the shave and pave that we did on Burlington Street, I think, is going to perform very well for us for a good uh, seven to ten years. So hopefully that'll uh, that'll give us that kind of service down there. But the shaves and shave and pave tactic. It really, in, in the best of circumstances, might buy you seven to ten years, and in, in the worst, maybe three to five. So we we have to be very targeted where we use those, um, because sometimes that's not the best way to approach a uh, the rehabilitation of a road network. We're out of time, sadly, because I never even got to ask about all the other infrastructure this city has that isn't roads that probably is also get taking a beating with this kind of weather. But well, maybe that's for another day. Um, in the meantime, Dan McKinnon, general manager of Public Works, always appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, if you're driving, Dan already said, what do you say? 2,100 potholes already in January have been plugged. Imagine when all the snow melts and everything starts to, oh man. <laughs> and drive slowly unless you want your car destroyed until they start fixing these things, by the way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if you've been following what's been going on with the sentencing in Humboldt, with the Humboldt situation. Uh, if you were here earlier this week, we had a reporter from out there who was telling us what was going on in court with the just the unbelievable emotion. That's not what we're going to talk about today, per se. I do want to talk about Humboldt for a second, but something completely different. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Let me, first of all, though, tell you the story today that came out of the courtroom was the lawyer, the defense lawyer for the driver was, was, was talking, was giving his client's side of things. And shedding a little bit of light, and you may have already heard this today, but if you didn't, shedding a little light on what led to the accident. What was going on that this driver blew through this stop sign or stop light and ended up hitting the bus? And the explanation that was given and that I've heard, well, I mean, no one is going to take issue with this. This, this, mayor, this is what he's saying happened. We'll, 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 we'll accept for the point of discussion that this is in fact what happened. It doesn't exonerate the driver by any stretch, but apparently he, the driver, uh, Jaskarit Sidhu was not an experienced truck driver. And as he was driving along that day, there was a loose tarp that was flapping around in the back of his truck. And the defense lawyer says that his client was inappropriately distracted by this tarp that he had stopped already once to try to fix. It had come loose again. It was flapping around and he had been lost. He was talking on his GPS, trying to get directions. And this tarp is flapping around and he wasn't paying close enough attention on the road and blew through the stop sign and hit the bus. You know what the outcome of that tragic mistake, lack of attention Choose whatever word you want. It, it, it probably all fits. But you know what the outcome of that was. 16 people dead, 13 more seriously injured. One of the most, if not the most horrible traffic accidents in Canadian history. I don't know if there's been one worse. None that come to mind. But I got to tell you, this um, this goes back to 
something that we talked about on this show before. Oh, and, and something else I have to say before I get to that. The Crown Attorney out there is asking for a 10-year prison sentence for the driver. That is what is being requested. Will he get that? I don't know. I expect that it won't be far off of that. I'd be really surprised if under the circumstances with this many people being affected, this many lives being lost, I'd be surprised if it was not significant, eight, nine, 10, I don't know. But it goes back, as I was saying a moment ago, to something we talked about a few days ago, and that is, is it possible in any way to have any kind of sympathy for this driver? And I'm not going to talk about that either. Just put that in your mind for a second, because this is one of those things where it is clearly a case, it seems, clearly a case where there is no malice, there is no intent to do harm, there is no intent, it seems, even to be driving improperly. He was, he was distracted, but it was not a case where a guy got into the cab of his truck and said, you know what? I'm going to behave like an idiot today. And if anyone gets in my way, too bad for them. That, that, there's nothing that is suggesting that. That what this is seemingly is a tragic case of someone who wasn't paying close enough attention, but had no intent to hurt anybody. And yet what we're talking about now, because of the result, because of the outcome, we're talking about a possible 10 year prison term for this. Are we going to take great issue with the idea of 10 years when 16 people have died? Some of you will, some of you won't. Certainly the families there, I mean, look, you, you can't just wipe it away. You, can't, you don't get a do-over. And we do have to do things in our society that deter other people from similar behaviors. Well, that's that's where... Another story pops to mind, and this one happened in Ontario last week. A week ago today, there was a story that came out that the, that the OPP stopped a 20-year-old Mississauga man who in poor weather, in poor winter weather, bad driving conditions, in other words, everything was screaming, drive properly. You're on the road, drive properly, drive cautiously. The OPP stopped a 20-year-old Mississauga man caught going 208 kilometers an hour in a 100-kilometer-an-hour zone and charged him with a bunch of things, including stunt driving. And as I'm reading this story, and I'm thinking of Humboldt at the same time, I don't know, it just seems like a natural connection almost, I'm thinking to myself, what's the difference between this guy and the driver in Humboldt who now may be going to prison for 10 years. And you want to know what the answer is? Good fortune. That's the difference. That's the only difference that we have between this driver and the driver who's now going to go to prison. Of course, the one was driving a, a, a huge truck. I understand that. And the other one, I mean, you can find little differences. But the point is the intent. This is what I'm, this is what I'm looking at here. The point is the intent. And you've got one guy who by every standard that I can find set out to do a day's work 
got distracted, didn't pay close enough attention on the road to his job and tragic things happened. You have another one where it appears that someone, you can't accidentally go 208 kilometers an hour, 210 kilometers an hour in a hundred kilometer an hour zone. That is not accidental. That's not being distracted. That's being an idiot. And that's being someone who is clearly saying, I don't care what's going to happen around me. If you're going 208 kilometers an hour and a car switches lanes and pulls in front of you that's going 70 because it was a bad night for weather, so there are probably some cars going below the speed limit, there is zero chance that you are stopping in time. You are causing an accident. You have one person who did something, who had something horrible happen based on bad driving, and you have another guy who didn't have something terrible happen but was driving like a maniac. Here's the difference. Besides the fact that that kid didn't hit anybody. The guy in Humboldt, they're now talking about possibly a 10 year prison term. What will the kid in Mississauga who didn't accidentally drive 208 kilometers an hour, you don't accidentally get up to those speeds. He knew what he was doing. He may not have known exactly it was 208, but he knew when you're going by cars at double the speed, you know, you're going fast. And he probably at some point looked at his speedometer. You get an immediate seven day, based on the the stunt driving that he got charged with, seven day driver's license suspension. Now that could be extended. Uh, An immediate impoundment of the vehicle. So he'll have to pay to get that out. Uh, You get a fine between 2000 and 10,000 bucks. Jail potentially up to six months. You know that's not going to happen. And your insurance rates are going to go up. But the only difference, actually, that's not true. There's two differences. The one difference between the two cases is good fortune because no bus filled with kids pulled in front of the lane where this idiot kid was driving and he didn't run them off the road. And the second is that one of them, the, the guy who's in big trouble, didn't do it on purpose, didn't drive like that. It didn't make a mistake on purpose, but this person did. And yet he's going to get far less of a fine. Is it not time... And the reason I go through this whole discussion, is it not time that more of our justice system's penalties are based not on the outcome, but on the behavior? Let me get Dave on here. If I can get, there you go. Dave, how are you tonight? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm going to point out to a big difference in my opinion here. Sure. Go ahead. Is that look in the mirror. Have you ever ran a stop sign by accident? I have look in the mirror again and say, how many times have you gone hundred kilometers an hour over the speed limit? Great point. The guy in Humboldt simply blew through a stop sign and a tragedy, a horrible, horrible tragedy. No malice. He didn't set out that day to kill a whole bunch of people. He was just trying to feed his family. I'm look, Dave, I, I couldn't agree with you more that I think that probably most of us, if we were to consider what we've done behind the wheel, unintentionally, but accidentally, either a red light or a stop sign or a school zone or past the school bus or sped or whatever. We've all done something, but with no intention to be an, a moron driver. That's right. I, I said that to a friend of mine on the weekend. I said to her, have you ever ran through a stop sign? She said, good God, yes. And you was know. it intentional? Probably not. Oh, no. Nobody, nobody, I don't think intentionally blows through a stop sign and and it's, it's sad, the outcome of that, uh, of that uh, you have to, the people of Humboldt, some of the, some of the parents at Humboldt, you appreciate their candor in this, where they've, 
they're trying to get their head around this truck driver themselves. You know, they know, they know he didn't mean to do that to their families. Dave, I appreciate the call. Thank you. Okay. Uh, 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you agree or disagree with Dave. I'm not excusing what happened with the driver. You've got 16 people dead and 13 people who were seriously injured. You can't just say, ah, oops. I mean, look, it's past the point of oops. It almost sounds ridiculous to even use that word. I'm I'm not trying to belittle it in any way. But Dave is right. He didn't wake up in the morning, that driver, and say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go hunting for a bus filled with young, vibrant people and blow it up. There's that he didn't, there's no chance. It doesn't mean that he doesn't get a penalty. It means how is he looking at 10 years when the other person who did drive, knowing the possibilities were possibly tragic, may get almost nothing. Rory joins me. Rory, how are you today? Not bad yourself. Good, thank you. What do you think about this? Well, I I think that she'll be more penalties for wrongdoing. And uh, I think you were right on, on, on when you first said that uh, the kid in Mississauga should be hardly penalized because he knew exactly what he was doing. He just got lucky. Exactly, because I I, I I drive for a living. I put over two hundred thousand k a year driving. We all make mistakes, but uh, when when you're speeding on bad weather like that, it it's dumb, and you should be penalized for that. The slap in the wrist, not enough. Rory, I appreciate the call. Thank you. Neil's been waiting patiently. Neil, how are you tonight? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Thanks for calling. Thank you. What do you think about this? Um. You're talking to a guy that ran uh, heavy equipment for quite a while, and I do recall back when I started how um, difficult it was because they basically, uh, the companies throw you to the wolves, and um, you have a lot to deal with, and, and it is hard. But I I, had, I did it for quite a while, and I moved up into steel, heavy steel, and then into the big B-train tankers running gasoline and uh, middle distillates, and the, um, the weight you're you're running is in absolutely incredible, and and the responsibility is huge. And uh, the thing that disturbs me about this situation in Saskatchewan is the fact that they are running multiple logs as well as no logs at all. Uh, so there's I know that uh, I heard that the carrier, uh, the owner of the business, is going to be uh, prosecuted on that alone. But the driver is is. Uh, he bears some responsibility 100%. There as well because he's also um, guilty of that as well. So I don't think I think there is some um, malice there as well that that is going to have to be addressed as well. So if he if he had difficulty with his equipment, he should have stopped right away and it, it shouldn't have moved until he was um, ready to go again and it was solved. But uh, obviously, he's maybe under pressure from his carrier and dispatcher to move. And that's what threw him off as well. Um, but, you know, sadly, there's a lot of people that have passed away and a lot of people injured. It's, it's ruined a lot of lives forever. But, Neil, uh, Neil, I got to jump in. But I look, I, I do. I agree with you. I, I do agree there should be penalty for this. I just don't believe that he set out to hurt people that day. He was careless and he will have to pay for that. Neil, I appreciate the call. Let me jump down here. Uh, Dylan joins me. Dylan, how are you tonight? Hi, good. Yourself? I'm good. What do you think about this? 
Okay, I, I think your analogy is 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 wrong. Okay. Uh, between the the driver and the kid, uh, and the reason for that is this is a professional driver. Uh, what it means to be a professional is that you're paid for something. So, as a professional driver, you take on uh, way more responsibility than anybody who is not. Another example of that is someone fall. He someone has a heart attack. If a person walks up, tries to give them CPR, screws it up. They're not liable. If a paramedic, a paid paramedic, a professional paramedic comes, gives them CPR and screws it up, then they're in trouble. As a professional, you, you hold a lot more responsibility than someone who's not a professional. Um, the the uh, uh, the fact that this guy wasn't filling out logbooks and stuff like that that just shows that just shows that he's got uh, a history of not not following the rules uh, and, and and so on and so forth. So I think that there was intent there, um, maybe not to kill a busload of kids, but uh, intent to break the law, uh, not be a professional. Um, and, and yeah, no, I, I think they should throw the book at the guy. Uh, yep. Set an example. I also think that one of the biggest problems is, is regulation. Uh, these guys are driving missiles down the highway. You're uh, right. You can't be passing these guys through, through trucking farms, you know, with, with, with no oversight. Uh, the, the, the provinces have to come down on, on trucking organizations, and the biggest thing is, is, is no one wants to pay. Dylan, well, Dylan, I got I got another cup. This is what you get. I got to keep some more calls. I appreciate you calling, I, and I appreciate you taking a, a different viewpoint. That's great. Thank you for your time. Let me go uh, to La- Eddie. How are you tonight, Eddie? I'm doing well, uh, Scott. What do you think about uh, this? Well, that driver admitted that he didn't have the experience. And uh, I'm surprised that the government didn't call an investigation into this, uh, these uh, schools that train these uh, tractor-trailer drivers because it's way too quick to get these guys in the seat of a tractor-trailer. I think, I think what we may see coming out of this is exactly what you're talking about. It's, uh, it's only a matter of weeks you can get your tractor-trailer license. And I mean, I drove tractor-trailer. you got a lot of responsibility. Eddie, I appreciate your call. I got to go to break, but thank you so much for calling. I do appreciate it. And Eddie's right. We, we, you know what? You do have. He, he's right. It's a missile. You can't be putting these people behind a missile and driving it down the road without proper training. But I still say, let's. I, I believe we should be punishing. We should be disciplining. We should be judging and sentencing, in part anyway, and in significant part based on behavior, not just on what happened. Because what happens if this truck driver in, in Humboldt, what if he ran this this red light or this stop sign and there was no bus there? Does that make it more of a bad offense? Does that make it less offensive? It's the same thing. We just had a different result. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a, a guy who many people around this city know very well for a variety of things that he has done over the years. He was a star football player in college and then in the pros. He went on to become the general manager of the Hamilton Ticats. Last time they won the Grey Cup, that's becoming quite a while ago, but that's that's what he was. Uh, he's coached uh, university football. He's been in marketing. He helped run the World Cycling Championship. He's been on The Amazing Race. And most recently, he was the director of sports at Brock University until today when he retired. Uh, his name is Neil Lumsden. He joins me now. Neil, how are you? I'm good. Is the answer Philip? 
<laughs> that's what I would have said in high school. Uh, congratulations. Now, uh, when I say retired, I feel like I have to do air quotes because I'm not sure you've actually retired, but you've retired from this job. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a difficult thing to do because I, I absolutely love the people there. And we had be at the student athletes, the students, our staff, our coaches. Our, I mean, it, it, it really is a great, great group of people that have accomplished a lot. And uh, so that's, it makes it difficult, but there's, you know, you have to sit back sometimes and reflect on what's best. And uh, at this point, um, this is what's best. We now have two universities in this nearby area. You've got McMaster here and Brock just down the road who are both going to be looking for athletic directors, full-time athletic directors. Um, does that say anything about the difficulty of the role? I, I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, it's, it's funny you, you you talk about this role and and you know some many people you know you just shoot the breeze over the years and when I talk to what used to be my colleagues at in the OUA or U Sport that well, you know our, our challenges are similar but you know what they're not they're not a whole lot different than they are and when you like when I ran my own business or when I world cycling or the tire cats there's anything that is worth doing and committing to is going to have challenges especially if your goal is to change the trajectory and, and make it better for those that you're working for and around and with. So, you know, just not to, it's not, it's never going in and punching a clock. It's, that's the one great thing about sport that, you know, whether it's on the field or ice rink or in the coaches rooms or the student athletes or athletes and staff doesn't matter. Um, there, there's a passion there that is and oftentimes unmatched. It's certainly, um, the workload itself uh, doesn't get rewarded, and that's not a criticism of any university. That's just the fact is the hours that people put in. But it's sport. People love it, and they do it for the right reasons, and they do it because they love people around them, and that um, they like to succeed and see other people experience good things, and, you know, that's, that's a rarity. You mentioned that you want to make things better. And the reason I wanted to have you on was for that reason, because I want to talk for a few minutes. Uh, We know the attention that NCAA sports gets down in the States, massive TV deals and March Madness and national football championships with enormous ratings and million dollar, multi-million dollar coaches and enormous field houses. And, and I mean, some of the dressing rooms go online and look at YouTube videos (laughs) of like Alabama's football dressing room. The Taj Mahal is shameful by comparison. We don't have that here, and I'm wondering why it is why it has traditionally and certainly in recent years too been such a struggle in some corners for Canadian university sports to get any kind of acclaim or anywhere close to the same acclaim as U.S. sports. Well, it's a great question. It's been bantied and kicked around. Um, the the one thing I'll start with though is what we do have is when it comes to sporting universities, Canada student athletes graduate and they come out with degrees and and take that to the next level because it isn't all about sport it is about the sport that they're focusing on but they also continue to maintain their academic standard because they know if they don't they're not going to play and and canadian or u sport athletes and across this country understand that if you don't you're not playing there's you can't sneak by the coach can't cut you slack you're not you need to keep a standard of your, your academic standard up so you can play. So that's one of the things, and it's a very positive thing that makes us different than the U.S. And that, now I'm not talking about all, but certainly a lot of the schools, if you, know, if you really dug deep, 
uh, many student athletes that are playing in the NCAA probably aren't going to graduate, and it's unfortunate. So that aside, um, you know, I, they're machines down there, Scott. You know this. I mean, you mentioned Alabama. You mentioned a lot of the NC schools. They, they make money. They make huge money. It was funny. I, I flipped on uh, the sports the other night, and I, and I only caught part of it, but either – it was either, I think it was Michigan basketball, and somebody was announcing after Michigan, I think it won, that, you know, the, the school has given the students off classes for the next day. I mean, can you imagine that, that they, they announce that at a full basketball game because they won a game, they get, every, you know, everybody gets tomorrow off. Well, <laughs> that's great, but you'd never see sport have that power in Canada. And that's not a bad thing, but it's... Um, you know, it's a, we're academic institutions, and it, that's number one. Number two is, um, and there are a lot of people that do understand it, that, that sport plays an integral role. Even casual sport and intramurals, and, you know, thousands of kids participate in that, and Brock and other universities, and working out in the, in the zone and the gyms, not student-athletes, but just the population, the mental health thing is really important, staying fit, because the better you are, physically the more effective you're going to be at school and there's all sorts of studies and when it comes to the student athlete um you know there's there's a limit you can't i I think university sport has done a better job of promoting themselves but i don't think there's enough pickup um what do you mean by that enough attention well there's not people don't pay enough attention to the high quality and but that, no, I, I think I've that, Neil, I think a lot of that, though, is it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that if we, uh, if we don't believe or don't cover them the way that American sports are, we are led to believe they're not as good, and therefore, why would I pay attention to them? That's right. You're right. And, uh, and that's not the case. And people that do go out and watch Brock's men's hockey team or Brock's women's hockey team and sit and watch and, and walk away going, holy crap, this is really good hockey. Well, yeah, it is good hockey. It, it, it's not good. It's great. So why why won't people, you know, junior teams across this country don't all draw, draw like let's say they do in um, in St. Catharines or or in London, but it's it's important to the fabric in the U.S. more than it is in Canada, and that's just the way it is. Sport plays to me plays a huge role in Canada and the social side of what we do and the development of young people, but it's just not in the, it's not at the same level culturally as it, as it is in the U S and in some reason, in some ways, as I said earlier, it's not a bad thing because we drive education, but the other is you sit back and watch, you know, and for the most part, Brock sells out their basketball games and does very well in other sports, but you think these kids are great. And, you know, I, I always go back to, you know, the missed opportunities when we send uh, in football our two kids down to the East-West game. And they not only compete, but they shine. Those are the best players in the NCAA down there. And our kids go down and compete. My philosophy has always been they're not better than we are in the U.S. They're just more of them. So that, that volume creates the opportunity. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, talking about in Canada, why are, why are we not putting those kids out front and letting people know that they are stars and they're stars in their community too. That's the other thing I don't think enough of these kids get recognition for. And, you know, you hear about Ohio state coming to Mac for the last few years and Ohio state's ranked and certainly in the top 10 and maybe top three in volleyball, men's volleyball and Mac traditionally, at least in the last few years, dismisses them three, one, three, nothing, three, two. 
you know, max rank in the top 10 in Canada. Well, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. But, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, it's just, you know. It's just volleyball. Not there. Yeah, it's just volleyball. It's, no, no. Our best against their best. Some of the elite. And there we are. Look how we do. But you, one of the things though, I mean, you, and when you say we don't have the, I don't know what the word was you used. We don't have the audience. We don't have the tradition. One of the things that the started, yeah, the culture that started, I think, before you got to Brock in 2016, but has really taken off since you got there is something that the, the Brock University Athletic Department has done, which is called the Steel Blade Classic, which every year is a hockey game played at the home of the Niagara Ice Dogs, which holds 5,500 people, something like that. And every year for that game... It is sold out. It is, people can go online and look at video. It's a, it's wild. The, the, the Brock kids show up and they wear their red and they make lots of noise and they turn it into a street party. And it's why, okay, it, it's proven, proven that this can work that one time a year. Why could it not work regularly? Why could the culture, and I don't just mean at Brock, but in general, why could the culture not allow for that to be every time? Well, you know, I, I think they up in Guelph, and, and I'm not sure who Guelph plays, and the Frosty Mug's been going on for years, and it's it's a, a similar type of hockey game, and they sell out. The National Classic, who, I mean, in Ottawa and Carlton face-off, both in basketball, I think, and hockey, um, in a big venue every year. It draws really well. You've talked about the Steel Blade Rs. you talk about our basketball games. The Panda. At the Meridian Center. You know, Panda, 22,000, 23,000 on a regular basis. Um but I think, you know, that you're right. That is the start. I mean, I've, I've, we've had conversations at Brock about saying, okay, so um, the engagement is huge, as you said. Um, for hockey, it's, it's the preseason, or it's even it's right on the edge of preseason. So it's nice outside. We do a tailgate. We do some great things, and they go away. And, and that, I think that allows us to be able to do more. Could we do it, or could anybody do it on a regular basis, like every home game? Wouldn't that be great if we could? But there's a cost that you have to incur, and there has to be a willingness to spend that money to drive the experience for students at the university because all you need to do is walk in the, in the Meridian Center, whether it's a basketball game against Mac or Ryerson or we're playing the Steel Blade Classic against Guelph. People go, oh, my God. Yeah, we got to do and this again. Is. But yeah, and, and the money are, though, yeah. Neil, the money. When you say it, it, there's a cost. Of course, there's going to be a cost. You have to rent that arena and everything else. But that brings me to one of the other huge differences with the states that I've never been able to figure out exactly why this difference exists. In the states, you have so much money flowing in from alumni boosters and alumni supporters mm-hmm. that you don't have here in Canada. And I don't, I don't know wh- why they've been able to tap into that so aggressively and so richly in the States and talking to people here, talking to people at McMaster, it's almost impossible to get that from 99% of the alumni here. Yeah, it is, it is a struggle. And those that, that step up and, and spend, you know, and I, you know, it comes to mind the guys like David Braley in this world and, uh, and David Howes in, in, in St. Catharines, there, there are a lot of phenomenal um, givers out there but the, again it's a volume thing i mean you know i it's funny what sticks out at you i remember you know a year ago they were a tv camera was in one of the tailgates at one of the large universities and they're having a great time and they talk to this this woman and she's they say well you come to the game she's oh i don't miss the game uh, my husband and i would bring our kids uh, i went here for four years i went to every football game and i continue to and my kids are going to do the same thing and my husband was from another but we're going i mean it was 
what they did. Tradition. It just it didn't matter. It was tradition. They were, if, there, if it was Michigan, like, that's what we do in Michigan. And when we, when we graduate and we go on, we'll talk about creating a connection or a conduit to a fan base, not even the student-athlete piece, but just the, the people that went to the university that carry the Michigan logo with them with pride all the time. That's creating that volume is what, it's like anything else. It's a shotgun. If you've got enough pellets going out there, you're going to hit somebody. Again, we haven't got that kind of volume. We've got a couple huge universities in this country, but, you know, uh, it, it's tougher. It really is tougher. So um, you can't always rely on the student athlete to step forward and give money. You need to have to rely on your alumni base that were engaged. And I think doing things like we're ta- we've talked about, whether it's a steel blade game or our basketball games, uh, the Frosty Mug, the Panda game, those student athletes, when they graduate, if somehow there's a connection, and they tr- and they and they continue that connection, that that's where the donors are going to come from down the road, and uh, that's where sport really can drive that culture and that relationship that is so hard to build, but it's it's easier when you incorporate sport. Firing emails out to people that have graduated, saying, "Hey, can you give?" Uh, it's different than firing them out to people that are passionate about sport. And the more, when you're in the U.S., when you're lucky enough to have a 120,000-seat stadium or 65,000-seat stadium, and they're, it's full every home game, and this is not every university in the U.S., but a lot of them, you're, the field's pretty big for you, isn't it? Could we ever see that then? Could we ever say, we only have a couple of minutes left. I mean, do you envision the day, even if it's 20 years down the road, that we could ever see that kind of thing happening? Or do we simply have to say, you know what, we are just different here in Canada and our sports is perpetually and always going to be different and that's just the way it is? I, I don't think, we'll, Scott, we'll ever be at that level by any stretch because, again, it comes back to that, that volume scenario. But, yeah, I do, I do think we're seeing more of it because the more events like we've already talked about, the more, the more it happens, uh, the more opportunity, if in fact... We've created relationships with those people and not just sold them tickets. Like find a way to connect with them afterwards, bring them out to other games and, and stay connected with them and continue to remind them that when you were a Badger and not a student athlete, but you're, when you're a Brock, you're a Brock Badger. And that brand is very important. So when they graduate, they take with them because they had, they went to four steel blade games. We won all four. We've had basketball games. We beat Ryerson. We lost to Mac, whatever that they understand that that was a part of their development as an individual. They graduated from the business school, which is one of the best in North America, and doggone it, uh, that was part of my life there, and I want to make sure someone else has the same opportunity. But you got to do it by staying connected with people. Neil Lumsden, the as of today, I mean sort of, today was officially <laughs> your last day, but I understand you may stick around for a little while to help out. But as of today, the former... Athletics or director of sport? What, what was your actual title? You changed it. It was the, the head of sports, uh, uh, right? Well, di- direct, director of Spro- director of Brock Sports. There you go. Yeah. Uh, congratulations on the quote quote retirement, and um, yeah. we'll I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in your new position, whatever that may be, wherever that may be, uh, before too long. But thanks for doing this. Or on a golf course. I or on a golf course. course you know. Yes, or in studio here. You're you're welcome anytime. <laughs> Appreciate uh, I'd it. I'd love it. Thanks. That's uh, right, that is Neil Lumsden. Um, it, it's a really interesting topic. It's a, to to me, and I think to a lot of people, because we look at what goes on in the states, we look at the massive sports infrastructure, the massive sports money 
when you've got coaches making five, six, seven million dollars a year and you go, that's insane. And then you realize, yeah, but those coaches and the programs they're running are actually bringing 10 times that much money into the university through sponsorships and through winning and through ticket sales and through TV deals. It, it is, it is a, it's a monster of an animal that we can't even grasp here. And I don't know that we want to, but I think we may want to close the gap a little bit. Because it's still a real challenge. If you have someone say they go play university sports and they say they play it in the States, it doesn't matter if you play university sports at Podunk College. If you say you're on a scholarship there, that sounds really cool. And if you say, yeah, but I go to McMaster and play sports, there are people, even if you are a tremendous athlete, who will go, oh, okay. And what do you take? And that's fine. We want people to be doing their academics But there seems to be this chasm of belief or trust or whatever that if you stay in Canada that you can be any good at your sport, which isn't true. There are some sports in the States that are vastly better. No Canadian football team, Canadian university football team will beat the top university football teams. Not a chance. But it happens in volleyball, happens in other individual sports all the time. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.